Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. We talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm so glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Matthew Kressler. He's an associate professor of religious studies at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. He teaches courses on religion, race, and politics in America. He is the author of Authentically Black and Truly Catholic, The Rise of Black Catholicism in the Great Migration. I wanted to speak with Matthew today because the perspective he shares is one that maybe we don't know about. He's a historian. He studied these issues on the Catholic experience during the civil rights movements, particularly that of resistance to the civil rights movement. And I know this is going to be new information to you. So I need you to listen actively, and I need you to be open to new concepts that you may not have heard before, because we're going to talk about how race, particularly from the perspective of white people, influenced their understanding of Catholicism and how they should or should not have interacted with movements for justice like the civil rights movement or even Black Lives Matter. So stick around for that conversation. Hey, quick note. The reason I'm doing this podcast is because America Media is committed to hosting real conversations. And I think we have to have these real conversations about the church and the world. We do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, in videos. And the best way to access all of that content and support this show, the Glory Purpose Podcast, is to go on over to America and get a digital subscription. You can visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and I'll put the link in the show notes. My conversation with Matthew Kressler is up next. Matthew, thank you for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, Gloria. I am, look, I'm so excited to talk to you. First of all, you're from my hometown, Charleston, South Carolina. I know exactly where the College of Charleston is. My (laughs) high school before they sold it, Bishop England High School, was literally like right next door to the College of Charleston. Like the campuses were right next to each other. So I feel like, you know, if you had been there a bazillion years earlier, we might have known each other. (laughs) We would have seen each other at St. Patrick. I know. And the fact that you know that parish and, oh my gosh, we just have, what do they call it, six degrees of separation? I think we've got like one degree of separation. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, so Black Catholics and that being an area that you study, I think it's like people know we exist, but not really. They don't really know anything about our history. If you were to tell our listeners if they wanted to get some knowledge of Black Catholics, what three books would you suggest they read? Oh. That's great. So the first one you have to start with is Cyprian Davis's The History of Black Catholics in the United States. He is, that's the one. I mean, it's that is one of those beautiful books that is both transformative in the sense that it tells the history of Black Catholics in a comprehensive way yes. for the first time, and also laid the groundwork for scholars and you know scholars and scholars and scholars to come, including myself. So that was one of the pillars of my own research. Um, there's an incredible edited volume called Uncommon Faithfulness. It was edited by M. Sean Copeland, 
along with Lorraine Lewis Mosley and Albert Rabateau. And that has a number of historical essays in it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there there are so many to choose from. If we're kind of deviating a little bit from history, I'd say Brian Massengill's the Catholic Church and Racial Justice. Oh, which yeah. Is I read that. A foundational one too. text as well. So mm-hmm. the thing for me in reading the history of Black Catholics in the United States by Cyprian Davis, he's a Benedictine father. One of the things that struck me was how was the Pope Benedict XV had asked the bishops to please, since the red summer of 1919, to please discuss this at your next bishops' meeting. They'd gone to Archbishop. Meinrad and Gibbons out of Baltimore, Cardinal Gibbons, and said, please discuss it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll discuss it. And of course, this was something that was major happening to the Black community, happening in the United States, and they didn't discuss it. And then I thought it was kind of cheeky how then Pope Benedict XV, if I'm getting it right, then said, okay, open a seminary for Black men in Mississippi you know, to make it clear to them how serious he was about right. what was going on with Black people in the United States and That's what right. was going on among the clergy. And so that was very heartening to me to see that. But there's so many other things to read in that book that I think is would be helpful. And, I'm, and I'm, I keep trying to say, well, why isn't this stuff taught at least, you know, in Catholic schools? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just to wax poetic a little bit more on Cyprian Davis, like, yeah. I think that what's really revolutionary about that book is he, be- you know, so it's history of Black Catholics in the United States. Yes. Where does he begin? He begins with the beginning of Christianity, right? Yes. He says, yeah, Black yeah. people, there have been Black <laughs> Christians for as long as there have been Christians, period. You know, there have been Black Catholics in, you know, if we want to talk about the Americas, because that's where we are, right? Yeah. There have been Black Catholics in the Americas since there have been Catholics in the Americas, period, yes. right? So what's so revolutionary about that text is he says, right, like Black Catholics have been here the entire time and they have been ignored, I think, is a, a light yes. word, I think, erased from, from history. Word, more um, so well, why is it not taught in Catholic schools? You know, I think that for many white Catholics, for much of their history, the history of Catholics has been assumed to be the history of white people. <laughs> and I actually think that that right. trickles down into American culture. Like, I think that until recently, so until the last, let's say, 30, 40 years when Latin American immigration has really started to transform the U.S. church, you know, I think that most Americans, period, have for the 19th and 20th centuries assumed that when you're talking about Catholics, you're talking about white European people. Yeah. I can testify to that because I've been <laughs> present even in my at work when I was working in corporate America years ago. People would talk about Catholics with me in the room in the most derogatory manner mm. and say all kind of nuts and stuff. And I was like, yo, I'm Catholic. Y'all know this? And also, you're dead wrong on what you're saying. We don't believe these things. And just the utter shock of everyone yeah. in the room. And totally. I'd be the only Black person in the room, the only Catholic. And it's just like, it was wild. Their perceptions of who is Catholic and what Catholicism could look like That's right. was basically white. That's right. I was an anomaly. And I was like, actually... It's a whole community where I come from, a whole community here in the D.C. area. I was like, I was like, we aren't, it's not like, you know, I'm a unicorn. <laughs> there's, no, there's, no. And there are people who've been Catholic for generations, you know? That's right. And especially, I mean, and you know, you know, having been in Charleston and in Baltimore and D.C., I mean, those yes. are some of the longest standing homes of Black Catholics in America. You know, the coastal South, you know, New Orleans, Baltimore, New Charleston, Orleans, yeah. like are places that have had Black, again, have had Black Catholics 
here for as long as there have been Catholics in any of these places. Absolutely and I think right. that, that, that you're totally right. You experience the flip side of the coin, right? So most people assume that when you're talking about Catholics, you're talking about white people. And most people assume that when yes. you're talking about black religious folk, you're talking about Protestants. And both of those assumptions, if you're looking at like the Americas as a whole, right, or history in a longer mm -hmm. view, both of those assumptions are wrong. As you know, right, this is shocking to a lot of people, but you don't need to tell black Catholics that because they, they <laughs> right, know because right. they've been here and they've lived that history, <laughs> right? So Exactly, exactly. We have lived that history. This is our church, you know, yeah. and that's one of the things with what has been happening in the last year, year and a half in the United States and talking to black people across the country who may not be in a parish that's predominantly white, almost feeling like they're being ignored, like what kind of things Black people are dealing with, with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the way the conversations in the parish have gone to alienate them. And so, yeah, there's a lot I think that people need to think about when they think about Catholicism. And you have this article that I have read multiple times that I absolutely love called Real Good and Sincere Catholics, White Catholicism and Massive Resistance to Desegregation in Chicago, 1965 to 1968. Well, first of all, <laughs> you know, the story goes that we were, Catholics were all up in the civil rights movement on the side of civil rights and for it. And what do you mean there was massive <laughs> resistance? That had to be isolated. That had to be just like a few bad Catholics. What do you mean? You know, so I think you're helping to tell, reveal, undo some myth-making that has not served us. So could you tell us about what this means? What did that massive resistance to desegregation look like? I mean, these were good people, good Catholics, right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love the way into that question because we, I think that perhaps unsurprisingly, most folks and even most historians have spent most of their time thinking about the so-called heroes of the story, yes. right? The people, they they want to... We, I think, generally, white people in particular, want to imagine ourselves as on the right, quote unquote, side of history. So that's why, as you were saying, like we think back on the civil rights era and all of a sudden everybody and their mom were, <laughs> were fighting on the right side of civil rights. So massive resistance is a term that we use to describe the other side of the equation. So as cities and states and the federal government and courts start to mandate the desegregation of institutions. So they mandate the kind of ending of segregation in both public and private institutions. That doesn't happen quietly. You have white people of all stripes, right? All class backgrounds, all ethnic and religious backgrounds, right? Resisting that in a variety of different ways. And I'm a professor, of course, so I could give you books and books and books and books. But there's a book called Desegregating Dixie, <laughs> and it's about the desegregation and the segregation of Catholic institutions. And there's this line in that book where Mark Newman, the author, says that like most white Southerners, most white Catholics supported segregation in one way or another, right? Either by getting out in the streets mm -hmm. and throwing bricks and rocks at civil rights protesters, whether it was kind of being out in the streets and confronting black boys and girls as they were walking into schools, or whether it was, you know, no less insidious, but just as destructive white 
investment in the suburbs and divestment from urban communities, right? The kind of leaving or what we sometimes call white flight, which sounds so kind of like innocuous and, yeah. and innocent. So yeah, the article is trying to say, look, we've spent all this time talking about the kind of handful of exceptional Catholics who were committed to racial justice. It's time that we spend some time thinking about the majority of white Catholics who either were actively out in the streets protesting desegregation, trying to prevent the desegregation of institutions, or were kind of opposed to mixing politics with religion, as they might say, right? And we can think about like yeah, how the, that echoes down to today, right? This notion of like, well, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm all for civil rights, but I think that I should be able to send my kids to Catholic school and I don't want any black students there, right? That kind of, that kind of thing. So, And it's interesting that when I was reading through your article, you talked about the three essentials of white Catholicism. And by the way, when you talk about white Catholicism, you're not talking about Catholicism as just practiced by white people, but you mean something very specific by that. Could you explain it to our listeners? Yeah. You know, I think that this goes back to the beginning of the conversation. When most white Catholics, you see me being very careful about how I'm talking about, right? Like when most yeah. white Catholics think about Catholicism, they don't call themselves white Catholics. <laughs> they just call themselves Catholics, right? right? And that's not just ordinary folk. When historians have written, you know, so most, not Cyprian Davis, right? When most white right. Catholic historians have written about American Catholic history, and most of the books on American Catholic history are written by white Catholic historians, they don't talk about white Catholics. They talk about American Catholics, or they talk about middle-class Catholics, or they talk about Catholic immigrants, or they talk about just Catholics, right? And what that does is it gives people, white Catholics in particular, this sense that, well, my Catholicism isn't racialized. It's not white. My Catholicism is just real Catholicism, right? It's just normal Catholicism. It's the just like the way, the original right. Catholicism, right? So part of why I am insisting on talking about white Catholicism as a thing in a similar way that we might talk about black Catholicism is to kind of call attention to the fact that, yes, white people are racialized in this time and place that we find ourselves. They have a race. And that race, inevitably, because we are all kind of swimming in the culture that we are formed in, right. that shapes what it means for them to be Catholic. And so we need to stop trying to act as though our religion or our Catholicness is kind of off in this bubble, kind of separate from everything. And all of the rest of our life is just happening. You know, if we imagine white Catholics owning and selling human beings. Yes. We have to also talk about, well, how did the owning and selling of human beings shape what it meant to be Catholic for them? Exactly. Because yes. you couldn't separate those things. And so this article is not about the distant past. It's about the very recent past. It's about the past of 40, 50 years ago. And the same thing goes, right? Like if you have white Catholics saying, I'm a good, you know, so that, that's a quote, yes. the title of my article. You have people saying, I'm a real good and sincere Catholic but I don't want my yes. kids attending schools with black students. I don't want to attend mass with black yes. Catholics. I don't want. And so then I'm saying like, well, we have to name that, right? We can't just like act as though that was somehow some like separate thing. Like that's part of what made them Catholic. 
and how they identified, like that they have daily mass goers and just all the things that you would consider, okay, the mark of someone is taking their faith seriously and yet still very clear in their perception that there was no room in their life, in their faith for any kind of interaction with Black people, at -hmm. least in terms that maybe made Black people equal to them. It was shocking to me that letters were written to the Archbishop of Chicago saying that he's going to drive white people out of the church by being accepting of integration. And then it, so it made me think, well, then what does your faith really mean to you if you could yeah. abandon it yeah. at the just at the mere thought of yeah. having Black people in the parish with you, in the pews with you, in the Catholic schools with you? And by the way, they're your co-religionists. You know, these people Absolutely. who believe like you. So it does, you do have to ask yourself, but then what is Catholicism in yeah. their mind? Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And I am, um, this is going to seem like a bit of a leap, but I think it's relevant. So in the midst of the ongoing clerical sex abuse crisis, when you hear folks say like, this is so horrific, like I can't be Catholic anymore. I'm going to stop donating to the church. I'm going to stop attending church. Yeah. When I saw that, I thought of the letters that I was reading where not because of sexual abuse, but because of integration. Right. Because of integration. <laughs> something just, right. Something that, you know, we think of now as a kind of essential moral good. You had people saying, and not just saying, but doing, right? Leaving the church, yeah. refusing to donate to the church. I just learned from another writer, Terry Murray, about a protest that happened where as a result of the Chicago Archdiocese decision to support integration, the parishioners of a parish organized a protest where they would all put black buttons into the offertory baskets oh. to signal that they opposed the integration of the school and their neighborhood. Wow. And that, yeah. And so that, and I, and I write about this in the article, but you can see ways in the ways that people talk about their Catholicness and the ways that they live their Catholicness. You can see the ways that when a lot of these folks are saying Catholic, what they mean is white Catholic, right? <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're like not saying the word white. They're not using a racial category, but what they are effectively saying is that we are the real Catholics and yes. these other people are either not Catholic or they're kind of frauds, right? right um, and right. we don't want, and we don't want to be a part of a church, any church that would have them, right? Like um, they're the measuring stick. They're the measuring right. stick. And the other thing that um, I also noticed in the letter is how they portray themselves as like, we're supposed to teach respect for moral authority and law and order, not at all asking the question is, but is the law moral? Mm. You know, and so mm. just it's almost like, well, and we also have to think about the law in the United States and what kinds of things it's set in place for racial relations, right? And the kind of customs, traditions, and whatnot for centuries, really, <laughs> when you have enshrined in laws made for lack of a better way of describing it, whiteness was given a royal status in law from colonial period on, right? And so it's not surprising that you would have still on the books at this time immoral laws and immoral practices and customs that seem normative to them. But in light of the faith, if they had examined this in light of the faith, they should, I would have hoped, realize actually this is immoral. But they couldn't do that. And in fact, one letter writer even went so far to invoke the faith, something that we commonly say, that everybody is made in God's image and likeness. And she says, but you still have to earn the respect. And she says, and the Negro has not done that. And it just blew my mind. So like in theory, she believed, you know, we're all made in God's image and likeness. But 
she would say in practice, the Negro hasn't really proven that because they've got to, and also to set herself up as the arbiter for whether someone deserves that they have to do something for her to give them what inherently they have. It was just really interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that gets back to, you know, I think that gets to this bigger issue, right? That you have, I think that for a long time and still to this day, Catholics who are fighting for racial justice and mm-hmm. who are want to see a world of racial justice have often made this distinction, you know, that the Catholic Church is a church that transcends race and racism that has kind of given us models to fight for racial justice and that it's kind of individual Catholics that have been bad actors at various points in times, right? That the Catholic Church is kind of over here right. in, in the sideline, like in a bubble, and all of the instances of racism that we can point to, that's just, just kind of bad, like bad apples, but, right? That's bad actors. But it, that's kind of not... Talk about why that's a problem to try to make it something that there's just some you know, bad apples. What does that do when we try to write these people off as sort of fringe, bad apple people? They're not indicative. What does that do for our understanding of the faith? Yeah, of the yeah, I think of the faith and and of what it means to be Catholic. I mean, I think that what that does is it kind of it misdiagnoses the problem. If we are and right now I'm not talking about the 1960s, I'm talking about today, right? If we are trying to in 2021 address the ongoing reality of racism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And if we're doing that as Catholics, right, as faithful Catholics, then we have to understand what it is that we're trying to address. If you separate Right. If you if you try to make this distinction between, you know, this pure Catholic church as an institution or a faith and then individual bad actors, what you miss is the fact that the institutional church itself has a history of complicity and the things that we would now call racism, colonialism, white supremacy, you know, and going further that the way many white Catholics have been formed to be Catholics, right? Like the the ways that they have been taught about what it means to be a good Catholic and what it means to be a good Catholic American have right. been shaped by the racism and white supremacy, not only, not just that's part and parcel of the United States, but that the Catholic Church has had has been complicit in, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that if you try to keep these things separate, you end up misdiagnosing the problem. And then there's no wonder why every... 40, 50 years, we have to have a new pastoral letter or a new encyclical saying like racism is a problem. Well, it's because each time the letters have come, they haven't actually addressed the issue, which is that the problem is not out there in America, quote unquote, it's in here, right? It's in the church, church. it's in the formation, it's in the ways that people have been trained to be Catholic, particularly, I mean, white Catholics here. We'll be back in a minute. So I know there are people listening saying, what? This can't be. What do you mean the church has been complicit in white supremacy and racism? And um, this is why it's important for people to learn the history and to read things that, you know, I think Stephen Jax wrote about desegregating the altar was his book. I don't think people even understood or understand that bishops were not open to allowing Black men into the seminary or once they finished seminary, I was reading about a priest in Louisiana. He finished seminary and the bishop was like, that's good, but you can't come into this diocese, even though it was a seminary in this particular diocese. And so he had to go to a different diocese that would accept him. But even in that diocese, 
you know, he was treated as less than. His white, the white priest wouldn't do any priestly things with him. When they had their priestly functions, he wasn't allowed to attend. Black people couldn't attend activities in the parish because they were segregated facilities. And so they would miss out on days of retreat and even just the practice of their faith being affected by these racist practices that were just taken as normative within church life. That's right. And so these are the examples of the things that we mean. Oh, and by the way, that Black priest that I was talking about who was not allowed to be ordained in his diocese, he just died in 2019. So we're not talking about that long That's ago. Right. And if you think about 1968, is not that long ago. I keep thinking about if those people were alive, what did they transmit to their children who are most definitely alive? What That's did they? Right. What was transmitted to their grandchildren who are most definitely alive? And how? what have we done as a church to deprogram people from that stuff? That's right. Not much. <laughs> no. And that's why, I mean, and that's why I think those conversations about, you know, I, I think that... On the one hand, when we're talking about racial justice and the Catholic Church, we can sometimes make a mistake by assuming that by the Catholic Church, we mean just the bishops or just the priests, right? right? Um, Just the institutional authorities. But that said, like, this is why the encyclicals and the pastoral letters and the kind of teachings of the church, so-called are important is because they ultimately end up being foundational for the formation of Catholics, right? right? And if you're not, and so I think the frustration, the outrage that many folks have had recently with the statements of bishops or lack thereof, or the ways that Mm -hmm. kind of statements have been kind of toothless, you know, or have failed to charitably engage with the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that the outrage, at least among many kind of Black Catholics that I've been, you know, in relationship with, is not just because like, oh, well, this bishop or that committee didn't say something. It's because it's indicative of this systemic problem, right? Yes. The systemic problem that never seems to acknowledge the presence of Black Catholics and recognize that Black Catholics are owners of this church along with everyone else, and that the church thus must be committed to the lives, you know, that to the, to the yeah. notion that Black lives matter, right? Right. Um, and not see that as the latest thing is that everything about that is Marxist or anything about racial justice right. seems to be Marxist. And when you read in this, in your document, how they were talking about integration being communist, I was That's like, right. it's the same old it's strategy. The same it's, the it's the same thing. thing. Yeah, everybody the same who, thing. Yeah, everybody today who hears the label Marxist, you know, and, you know, whatever you want to call it, thrown at Black Lives Matter should just take a deep breath, pause, and remember that everything that is being said about Black Lives Matter activists and activism Mm -hmm. today was said about all of those heroes of the civil rights era that everybody looks back fondly of, right? That, that, you know, Martin Luther King King. was reviled when he was assassinated. I mean, he was one of the most hated men in America. And he was being labeled a Marxist, you know, then yeah, and just yeah, like yeah. like activists are today. So and so it was like this sort of fear mongering um, to to give people cover for not engaging in movements for racial justice. You know, you don't have to be a member of the organization to support the movement, which is Black Lives Matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I was reading through this, I just felt like, gosh, some of these same things. And also in the document. 
some people were just so clear that they were not going to, that they were very much against integration. Some of them were smart enough to say, well, look, I don't want to get excommunicated, so I'm not going to write my name here, which again, to me, shows that they knew what they had to have on some level, understand that it was in conflict with what we believe as Catholics. But then I also thought there was an irony in that they were writing about, you know, following moral authority. And, well, the bishop has a moral authority about desegregating Catholic facilities, you know, but they wanted to disobey that and felt completely justified in that. So that was interesting that they could see that they would see what he was doing as immoral because they didn't like it, because it challenged really some of their racist attitudes and values. But at the same time, they then wanted to obey secular law. Right? right, that was immoral <laughs> because right. it didn't conflict with That's right. their racist attitudes and values. And so you had to ask yourself again. I keep thinking, what was their perception of Catholicism then? Right, you right. know, and how were they able to so easily separate and compartmentalize the practice of the faith vis-a-vis their neighbor? Right, you're supposed to love your neighbor, and the black person is their neighbor. Yet nothing in all their years of formation and in homilies ever challenged that. That's right. And I think that that was the word I was thinking about, the word challenge. Like, I think that if you are thinking about how, what it means to be Catholic, you know, if we're taking my article for these white Catholics who are resisting desegregation, I think that for them, the line that separates what is the faith from what is quote unquote political is the boundary of their own comfort and self-interest, right? So as soon as their comfort and their sense of their own innocence is being Mm. threatened or challenged, they say, no, get that out of my church. That's political, right? That's politics. So there is this assumption that their devotion, their faith is apolitical. It's somehow neutral. It's somehow kind of outside of what's going on around the world. But as soon as the struggle for, I mean, like we can get around words like civil rights and racial justice and say the struggle for human dignity, right? The struggle for life on the part of Black Catholics, on the part of other Black folk in Chicago in my article, but across the country, like as soon as that interferes with their own sense of themselves and their innocence and their kind of power, frankly, then they say, well, that's not real religion. That's communist. That's that's Marxist. That's something else. And that same line operates through to today, right? Like where people will draw this line between like there's religion on the one hand and politics on the other. And what I always find, this is where my professor comes out, like what I always think is interesting about that is that that statement where you draw the line between religion and politics ultimately says more about you than it does about religion, right? It says more about what you are thinking about as real religion. And for these white Catholics, anti-communism was not politics. That was part of their faith. Right. (laughs) But, But integration, now that was politics, and that shouldn't interfere with real religion, right? So anything that challenged how they were currently living that might have required Mm -hmm. some conversion and change vis-a-vis racial relations could easily be jettisoned as political. And this reminds me of a conversation I was having with a woman on social media. She'd come on my Facebook page, and she'd commented that, I think I had a picture of a Black crucifix. And um, I think I asked the question of, you know, could you have this in your parish? You know, would this be accepted in your parish? And she says, it's not that we're racist, but that's just being political. 
to mm. have a crucifix of a black person, of a black man, and to bring it in our parish. I mean, that would just, you know, be political, and that's how people would see it. And I was like, is it political to have a white Christ, a Swedish-looking Christ, you know? <laughs> When we know that's not what he looked like, why is that not political? That's right. And uh, her answer was because all of us in this parish are white and that's what we look like. And therefore it makes sense and it's normative to have this white Christ. And I was like, okay, but what happens to when you have people who come into the parish who aren't white? That's right. You know, or so even just the discussion on the images of holiness, if they are in any way portrayed as non-white in some places, that would yeah. be considered being merely political and not religious, which That's I right. thought was just really very interesting, especially considering what Catholicism is worldwide, considering, I mean, it, sh <laughs> it shouldn't, like, I don't have a problem with the white Christ, and I'm a Black person. I don't have a problem <laughs> right. seeing a white Christ, but it, I can't say that it'd be the same, vice versa, that people wouldn't have a problem with an yeah. African corpus on the cross over the altar in their parish. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm no, I'm expected uh, to be okay with, you know, <laughs> and I am, because I know it's just yeah. representation of Christ, but it's not vice versa. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, what's revealed in that exchange is something that we can say about, I think, our society writ large, which is that for white people in particular, Blackness itself is political, right? And that's kind of getting yeah. back to that conversation that we were talking about, you know, like, where do you draw the line between religion and politics? Well, you know, for white Catholics, for white Americans, I would argue, Blackness itself is political, which is why we could look to so many different things, right? Why it's one dimension and why Colin Kaepernick's kneeling in the national anthem becomes this kind of like really political thing is that his very presence as a Black man is political. And the crucifix is, is, is really interesting too, because that gets to this question of like, well, whose church is it? Right. When we're talking about Catholicism in the America, you know, not in the United States, not in this little kind of like tightly drawn boundary around the 50 states, if we're talking about the Americas, the majority of Catholics in the Americas have always been and continue to be non-white. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. the majority of Black Christians in the Americas have been Catholic. So this notion that Catholicism is white is not just a problem in terms of what that does to the formation of people as Catholics. It's also kind of historically inaccurate. And I think that the thing about it's just my parish is all white, and so therefore, like, we have that. I mean, that might, it is true, you know, not yeah. just in the Americas, it's true worldwide that when folks become Christian and take the gospel into their own culture, they imagine <laughs> Jesus right. and that tradition through their own perspective. And so when the kingdom of the Congo and West Central Africa became Catholic in the 1400s, you know, a year before Columbus came to Hispaniola, right? Mm -hmm. They created crucifixes and believe it or not, right? In 1491, their crucifixes have a black Jesus on it because they imagine are black that. and their Jesus is black, right? So on the one hand, like, yes, if you have a white parish, like, it's maybe not surprising that your Jesus looks like the parish. The difference between those two examples, of course, is that one of them has been propagated as the one true and authentic image of Jesus and right. has been propagated around the world as such for centuries, and the other hasn't, right? So well, as, let me ask you something as a historian. How do you interpret the past year and all this happened since George Floyd's murder? the Black Lives Matter movement, and the church. <laughs> I know that's a lot, so, <laughs> but as best you can, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? I know it's a big yeah. question, but. 
It's a big question. One thing that I'd start with is it depends on, the answer to the question depends on what we mean by the church, right? So Mm. I think if by the church, we mean the, what I would call the institutional authorities, right? Bishops, priests, to some extent, women religious, right? If we want to take the institutional authorities of the church and ask, well, what do I as a historian make of that? I would say that I am not entirely surprised that the response of the institutional church has been lukewarm and haphazard at best, right? So you have individual bishops in particular places and individual priests in particular places being quite forthright in their support for struggles for racial justice and their actual marching in and writing pastoral letters around Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But as a kind of corporate entity, and again, I, as a historian, I'd say this is not surprising. As, as a corporate entity, the Catholic Church in the United States has proven ineffectual and, and actually not just ineffectual, unwilling, I think, to take a forthright stand on the behalf of not just Black life, but a kind of unwilling to engage in a thoroughgoing self critique of the complicity of the church in what's going on here, right? So that's my take on, as a historian, on the institutional church. Now, if we want to talk about the church not as institutional authorities, but as the faithful, then I think it becomes even more complicated, or we we see different things. Because I think that on the one hand, what's been really exciting is that the Black Lives Matter movement, from my view as a historian and as somebody who's living this, has activated, energized, ignited Black Catholics, as well as other Catholics, to engage in struggles for racial justice, in anti-racist work, in a way that we really haven't seen, I don't think, since the Black Catholic movement of the 1970s. Not since, like, the Black Power era have we seen that happen. And, you know, I know there are some listeners that are like, the Black Power era? What is that? <laughs> and it just, it just, And I say this only because people's exposure to Black history, Black liberation movements, Black intellectual thought is very limited. And so when you say the Black Power movement, there might be some people like, what are you talking about? Could you tell them exactly what, you know, just real brief, what you're talking about yeah. with the Black Power movement? Yeah, so I'll try to keep it brief. So when folks think about racial justice struggles in the 1950s and 60s, they tend to think about Christian nonviolence as embodied by Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer and Septima Clark and others. At the same time, so happening at the very same time, there were other people engaged in racial justice struggles who were drawing on different traditions, traditions of Black nationalism, Black radicalism, people like Malcolm X and Angela Davis and Stokely Carmichael. And they were arguing for Black self-determination, that Black people should control the resources and destinies of their own communities, and for Black self-definition, that Black people should define for themselves what it means to be Black. So Black power was the kind of like Black Lives Matter, actually, was the provocative two-word phrase that got white people really hot and bothered and got Black people really energized, or not all Black people, but but certainly (laughs) certainly activists like the ones I named, really energized and, and activated and excited. And what I think most people probably don't know is that Black power inspired Black Catholics to engage in activism, to create their own institutions, not for the first time, but in a kind of resurgent way, and created a movement. So from 1968 
all the way up until the 1980s, you have Black Catholic priests, sisters, lay people, bishops, transforming what it means to be Catholic in America. And, you know, I argue in my book that that really is a legacy of the Black Power Movement. That's something that really kicks off when Martin Luther King is assassinated. I mean, it's going to sound really eerily familiar, right? So like Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. is assassinated. There are riots in cities across the country. Police departments are instructed to kill looters. And Black Catholics, along with Black people across the country, were both grieving the loss of King, but also righteously indignant at the kind of like brazen use of police force in those riots. And so that inspired not all, but a significant number of Black Catholics to say, we need to transform We need to take control of Black Catholic communities, and we need to transform what it means to be Black and Catholic. And I would say also there was the whole Black is Beautiful movement too, right? Which um, sort of like this embracing of Blackness and this encouraging and the Afro, the natural hair and all this stuff is beautiful. And even the style of worship, right? Because you started to see within liturgy, um, was it, I think you mentioned Father um, Rivers, yes. Father Rivers, Clarence that's it. Rivers. Yeah, Father yeah. Clarence Rivers. And so even in the style of liturgy, the music that people brought right. in to sing and what happened within the liturgy, I think became much more enculturated as yeah. well with this resurgence and love of self, you know, Black that's is right. beautiful and all those things. Um, Anybody who's in a Black Catholic parish who looks in the hymnal in front of them and sees the hymnal, Lead Me, Guide Me, Yes. You can open the front of that. And it was first published in 1987, but it was one of the fruits of this movement I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, Sister Thea yeah. Bowman, Bowman, you know, mm-hmm. at that time, Archbishop Wilton Gregory, now Cardinal Gregory, Cardinal were, Gregory are yeah. two of the first pages you see. And that was just as you're saying, it was the fruit of a decade and a half, two decades of activism and organizing around love and celebration of Blackness and Black life. And so many things that we now... I think, just take for granted, but were really a struggle that had to be fought for. So if to our listeners that are saying, okay, this is some new stuff I'm hearing, I hadn't thought of things like this before, what kind of advice would you give them if they're like, you know, I want the kind of Catholicism that I practice to not have been or not to be continued to be shaped by a negative racialized view, you know, of the faith. So... <laughs> In other words, how can I be okay with representations or liturgical styles that aren't my own? You know what I mean? How can I get Mm -hmm. myself okay with that and not be so repulsed by it necessarily, seeing it as an otherness that's not, you know, faithful to the church? I think especially if we're thinking about white Catholics in the U.S. who have been cultured, who've been conditioned, who've been formed to think of their Catholicism as the only kind of real or authentic Catholicism. I think that one of the first steps that you have to take is recognizing, kind of being able to see who you really are, which is not to Mm. say kind of a negative view, but to reflect on one's own tradition as not eternal and timeless and coming out of nowhere, but as rooted in a particular cultural tradition. This is something, this is a kind of gift that I've received of studying with Black Catholics and relationship to Black Catholics, being present in Black Catholic communities, um, in collaboration with Black Catholics. One of the many things that awakened me too was that the tradition that I was raised in wasn't just kind of like neutrally Catholic or kind of generically American Catholic, but that it has roots in particular traditions, European, 
immigrant traditions. You know, my family is Italian-American, so distinctively Italian Catholic mm-hmm. traditions. And I think that the first step you have to take is to recognize that all of this is Catholicism. And the one that, that white Catholics have been kind of enculturated in is not kind of neutral or natural or eternal or has always been the way it is, but is rooted in a particular tradition. And yeah. so I, you know, for me, centering non-white Catholics, and in my case, it has been the centering of Black Catholics in their history, in their life, in relationship, has awakened in me a number of things, right? It's awakened that sense that like, oh, like the Catholicism I was raised in comes from a particular place. It has kind of awoken me the ways that the church has been deeply complicit in these things that we call white supremacy for its entire history in the Americas, right? That it's not a recent thing. And those are things that for me only happened when I started to push what I was familiar with to the margins and to pull the margins or the people who have been kind of like erased and isolated on the margins to the center. Because I do think that if you center Black Catholics in the story of Catholicism, it forces you to rethink everything you know about what it means to be Catholic and what it means to be American, frankly. I wow, that's so deep. And I'm glad you're you're sharing that. And I'm glad you shared that you are not black, that you actually are oh, Italian right. <laughs> descent. Cause I was just realizing I said, you know, I wonder if people are listening probably might have been. The limits of an audio. Yeah. The limits of an audio medium. Right. Yes. It's yes. So, I am know, a white I am very visibly a, a white guy. <laughs> uh, I, I my family is my people are Italian American, but no one would mistake me for anything other than a white man if they saw me on the street. So. Right. And I could see you. He's telling the truth, y'all. Because, you know, in Charleston, now there's enough black people that you're like, are they black? Are they white? You know? But. <laughs> But, you know, I'm just saying. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I think that that's, I think, and I'm glad that you're doing this and saying this because I want listeners that may not be Black to Mm. understand that that doesn't mean that they don't have a place and a space Mm. here to help in this conversation. And so we have a lot to talk about, a lot to consider, a lot to pass on to the generations that come after us. And also dealing with the reality of the history of our church, institutional-wise, and other in the United States. I mean, we weren't this major force in terms of abolition. We weren't this major force in the forefront of uh, civil rights. You know what I mean? We just we just weren't. And that's something we have to think about. And 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 why is that? And I know people have said, you know, it, it deals a lot of, uh, around with comfort, comfort of mm-hmm. white Catholics, comfort of white people and not wanting to alienate them or anger them or for whatever it is. And in some cases, I'm sure it's unfortunate to say this, but I'm sure in some cases clergy had the same sentiments. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I can add just a second, the, you know, it's about comfort. It's not just that engaging in racial justice work, particularly if you're white, challenges your comfort zone in the sense of like, oh, I feel uncomfortable or I feel awkward. I mean, it also challenges power right white like white people's power in society not just like on a cultural level to define the terms of what is considered real or authentic catholicism but also in terms of like actual material power right like who gets to attend what schools who gets to own what homes who gets to accrue wealth in particular ways and 
I think that that's the thing that we really miss when we don't recognize that this is why it's important to talk about racism and white supremacy as structures of power, right? There's a quote of James Baldwin's that I'm really in love with, where he says, talking about white people, he says, most of them know that what they're doing is wrong, but you can know something. What's hard to do is to act on what you know, because to Mm. act is to put yourself in danger. And I think that that is the real key. It's kind of the, you know, to use a biblical metaphor, it's that man who comes up to Jesus and says, I'm ready to follow you. Like I'm I'm here, I'm ready. And then Jesus says, okay, well, put yourself at risk, give away everything. everything. And then he's like, well, I can't. And like Baldwin has that same moment where he's like, a lot of white people know that what is going on is an evil. It's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they don't understand. It's that they're unwilling to act on what they know. And I think that that really is key. You know, it's about power. And we confuse it for other things. Wow, that's a lot for people to think about, to chew on. And I'm hoping that this conversation I'm having with Matthew Kressler has given you a lot to think about and a lot to chew on, a lot to pray about. It sure has filled me up. I've got a lot to think (laughs) about here too, and I appreciate it. And I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation and I'm going to pray that you can continue in my hometown oh. to have these conversations. I'm like, how did it chase you out there already? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm, oh. I'm glad you're having it here with me. And I'm really hoping people will pick up your existing book. And I can't wait for your new one to come out so I can read that too. Thank you so much, Matthew Kressler, for joining me, Gloria Purvis, on the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you so much. I'm humbled to be here. It was wonderful. If you want to catch more episodes of the Gloria Purvis podcast, be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.